Welcome back to the Interlude Podcast, where I share the journeys of incredible women who are living with cancer. Today, my guest is Emily Garnett. Emily is a wife, a mother, a lawyer, an advocate, and so much more. She was diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer at the age of 32, right as her son had turned two years old. She started documenting her journey and is now the host of the podcast, The Intersection of Cancer and Life, and her blog is called Beyond the Pink Ribbon. On today's episode, we talk about Emily's diagnosis and treatment, especially while raising a toddler, her experience with postpartum depression and anxiety and how that framed her cancer treatment, issues with fertility, her thoughts on mental health help during cancer treatment, and her plans for the future. I think you're going to find this episode so incredibly inspiring, and I learned so much from talking to Emily. So So welcome. Thank you for joining me. Can you start by telling the listeners a little bit about who you are? Thank you so much for having me. So I'm Emily Garnett. I am the blogger behind Beyond the Pink Ribbon and the host of the podcast, The Intersection of Cancer and Life. And I was diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer de novo in November of 2017. So it was actually three days after my son turned two and uh, less than a week after my fifth wedding anniversary, we had just moved out of New York City into our first house in the suburbs. We didn't really know anyone. We were about an hour away from where we had been living for the last 10 years. Um, I was 32 years old. It was like the shock of my life because we had been trying to get pregnant with a second baby and that obviously immediately was off the table. And so we were just thrust into this world of not just breast cancer, but metastatic breast cancer going from, you know, life with a toddler, the little kid years, which are so involved and so... Uh, intense in some in a lot of ways to having to shift gears and add this other incredibly intense incredibly emotionally fraught aspect to our lives as well and we don't have a you know family that's local as well so and we were in this new new town Um, it was just it was a culture shock doesn't even begin to kind of touch on it, but it was, it was just intensity at all levels. And it was so terrifying and difficult and traumatic. And so I'm uh, a little bit shy of two years post-diagnosis now, and I'm on my third line of treatment, which is, um, an oral chemotherapy. I was on a clinical trial earlier in the year and had some pretty significant progression off of that trial, even though I still feel like it was a very good experience. But um, it's been a very, it's been a very rough road for us. Can you talk about how you were initially diagnosed? So you're 32, you have a toddler, you know, being diagnosed with cancer obviously is not on your mind at all? What symptoms were you having? What led to the diagnosis? 
Well, so it's looking back on it, it is, I have a very different perspective than I did at the time. So really very shortly after my son was born, I started experiencing some pretty intense back pain. And every time I brought it up, I would, I was going to see, you know, specialists and practitioners about it because it was really debilitating. And every time I would bring it up, they would dismiss me and say, well, you know, you're postpartum, you're breastfeeding, your baby's probably not sleeping. You need to eat better. You need to sleep more. You need to exercise. You need to re-strengthen your core and all of those things, which are not untrue, but just like, they just kind of threw the book at me instead of listening to what I was saying. And I was a college athlete and I was in pretty good shape before my son was born. I exercised all through his pregnancy. I literally, I was on the treadmill the morning before I went in to be induced for him. Like, Mm -hmm. so I was, I had really, I had made a, a, a big point to be, you know, physically active throughout my whole pregnancy. And I was like, this, this doesn't add up. And something felt off and nothing that any of these doctors or physical therapists or, you know, anyone that I talked to was really working. Like the pain was getting worse as my son got bigger. And, um, eventually we started discussing trying for a second baby and we started trying and, I had just, my son had just weaned himself. He uh, woke up one morning and informed me that he was weaning. And <laughs> that, that was that. He, he said, I'm not nursing anymore. <laughs> I was like, oh. Okay, okay. then. You're All done. Right. <laughs> yeah. If that's how you feel. Um, but so it was, you know, I had only, he had only been weaned for a couple of months. And so I still you know, my, my breast tissue had fluctuated quite a bit. So it was, you know, um, and I have pretty dense breasts and, um, and and so, but there was just kind of a, like, we couldn't, I couldn't have told you what the lump felt like because everything felt lumpy because there were, Mm -hmm. you know, milk ducts and like, I, you know, my breasts got so much bigger after, you know, having a baby. So I went to my primary care doctor uh, to get a physical because I was like, I, I feel like something is very wrong with my body and we're trying to get pregnant. I want to have this conversation so that we can at least, you know, be on the same page if I get pregnant or if there's something that we need to look at before that happens um, as I wasn't pregnant yet. And um, so she did a full, like a, bunch of blood work. We were thinking maybe it was like an autoimmune issue or a thyroid issue or, um, you know, throwing around a lot of different possibilities because my symptoms were so hard to piece together. I mean, I was having uh, a lot of joint pain in unusual places and a lot of bone pain. It felt like, it felt like I had like, you know, these deep, bone bruises or like it almost felt like having broken bones which mm-hmm. spoiler alert I did um, <laughs> and, and, they just, um, and so she said well let's do a breast exam just to be on the safe side since you're done nursing and I don't know how because 
but she found a lump and the lump was so deep. It was, you can, you can only feel it in a very like certain position. You have to like hold my breast and like, you know, you have to really dig for it. It's really hard to find. It's very deep and behind the nipple. So it feels like breast tissue. It was very well disguised, but she's like, let's get this checked out go get an ultrasound. I went to the ultrasound. They immediately, you know, noticed irregularities, sent me for a mammogram, you know, half an hour later. And then after that did a biopsy and, uh, you know, but just looking at my films, they're like, we, you know, we would be shocked if this wasn't breast cancer, but they staged me at a stage two. They said, you, you know, we don't feel any lymph node involvement. Um, and did you know did a breast a bilateral breast MRI, but missed that there were lesions on my sternum on the MRI, and totally disregarded the fact that I was like, look, I I my back hurts now, my ribs hurt, my hips hurt, I can't really drive, I can't sit down to go to the bathroom, like I'm in so much pain in other parts of my body. Could that be related? And they said no. So I went for a second opinion <laughs> and um, the second opinion, I went to one of the big, you know, New York cancer centers and uh, the oncologist was like, well, I can definitely feel your lymph nodes and I'm really concerned about the sternum lesions that are showing up on your MRI and the fact that you're telling me you have bone pain plus the sternum lesions, plus the enlarged, you know, the lymph node involvement that I can clearly feel. She's like, we're sending you for a PET scan tomorrow. Um, so the PET scan note that I did in fact have metastatic disease and it had spread pretty, uh, you know, it was a pretty significant uh, bone involvement. So, you know, that was horrible and horrifying and you know it was also christmas time so of course. <laughs> yeah yeah so it was um you know it was, it was pretty awful it was just like unbelievably bad like how how do you go from having this totally normal life to being diagnosed with you know an, an incurable serious disease that could be you know terminal um, and, and it's, although at the same time I was have, I was in so much pain. It was almost like, you know, a, a terrible relief to have an answer because I was just so miserable. I was like, I can't keep living like this. There's gotta be something going on because this isn't normal. I think that's so true. You know, having that answer at least brings an understanding of what's been going on. How did you feel when people weren't necessarily taking your symptoms seriously. You know, you were complaining about the bone pain, the joint pain, and it sounds like it was a little bit dismissed. Is it because you were young or, you know, what's your take on that? Well, I think a lot of it was because I was young and I think a lot of it was because it was a very easy answer to say you're a new mom. And I mean, I, as, as a new parent and a first time parent and a parent whose body is, you know, foreign in a lot of ways, that's a very easy fallback answer. And I don't, 
I didn't know my postpartum body well enough to be able to say, this is not right because nothing was right. Like, Mm -hmm. and it was, I would, I had an extraordinarily difficult time postpartum. Um, I, I, I think that I had a lot of postpartum depression and anxiety. I felt very isolated. My body hurt. My body was totally different. It was, it felt so alien to me. So I didn't have a sense of what's normal and what's not for me in order to say, to push harder and say, no, that's not normal. And, and I also, I was staying home with my son who was exclusively breastfeeding and not a good sleeper and we were in New York City and it was it was just really really difficult to get to appointments we I didn't have a lot of I didn't have child care help um, I couldn't leave him with people because he didn't take a bottle but I couldn't take him with me because it was so stressful and we were our insurance was so terrible that you know each appointment was going was costing us you know a couple hundred dollars and so it was this this confluence of tough circumstances where it was very very hard to address my own healthcare needs because I was such an afterthought and I was like trying to balance so many other factors that were very inflexible it felt like my needs were the only needs that could be somewhat flexible and somewhat pushed to the back burner um, and, and it's funny because I'm an attorney, like I'm, I am used to recognizing the space where someone needs advocacy for themselves and isn't able to necessarily do it to the degree that it's needed. But I, I wasn't able to do that for myself. And, and I look back on it and part of me feels kind of frustrated and guilty and part of me is just kind of disgusted at this whole confluence of circumstances that created such a terrible situation for my family it's so difficult women have you know we put all these other people in our life first um and you know very often to the detriment of our own health right right and and it's and it's so frustrating because we know that we're doing that, but a lot of times, I mean, at least for me, I didn't feel like I had a choice. I felt like, well, this is what I have to do, and these are the these are these are the parameters that I have to make work. And so, um, and, you know, so it was just that care that, in hindsight, that I so desperately needed was just off the table. Mm-hmm. What happened when you were told about the diagnosis and starting treatment? What did your life look like at that time with the baby going through treatment with metastatic cancer? Well, I was, I mean, I'm fortunate, maybe not the right word. My, I, I avoided surgery and chemo because I was metastatic de novo. So I wasn't in that like acute high, high, high need situation. Mm-hmm. So I started on Ibrant and Letrozole, which okay. is all things considered a, a fairly reasonable combination of drugs to tolerate. Um, 
And I was on that combination for a full year, for 12 cycles. And I was in menopause, which going from you know breastfeeding to being in full chemical menopause in a matter of months was so hard on my body. And, and it being the holidays, and we had family coming out and staying with us for about two months to help us get through. So I gained like 30 pounds in six weeks or something, something horrible like that. It was because my body just was on the fritz. My hormones didn't know up from down. And we had people cooking for us and sending us treats because they felt bad for us. And it was the holidays and I felt bad for us. So I was like, you know, this is, it was just like this emotional eating maelstrom. Mm -hmm. Um, It was, and and it was winter. So I, you know, I wasn't exercising and um, I wasn't really getting out of the house. I was just very sedentary. Um, We had to put my son in preschool for a few days a week because I needed a break. I needed that time to rest and to recover and to kind of a, get our house together because we were still not even unpacked and B, get, you know, get myself together, figure out, you know, manage my medical bills and, um, you mm-hmm. know, organize our, our medical life and then go to appointments. Like I, you know, I had a, an appointment probably almost every week for the first couple of months between, um, you know, trying to make sure that I had proper, you know, the right care team in place, um, seeing my oncologist, doing blood work. Um, I found a psychiatrist that I was seeing very, you know, I still see very regularly, but I was, you know, seeing, you know, every other week or so because she was doing so much to help me kind of pull myself out of this mental hole that I was in mm-hmm. from the, you know postpartum depression and anxiety coupled with the metastatic cancer uh, I was finding support groups and you know going out and figuring out what our life was going to look like in this new town with our son find you know interviewing childcare people and our our preschool that we found for him was fortunately spectacular um, they had a lot of flexibility for us. The classroom was amazing. They had drop-off hours too. So if I was um, at an appointment and running late, he could stay for a few extra hours and it wasn't a big deal. And um, Or even on days that I wasn't able to, you know, had to go in like to the city for an appointment, he could stay there. And so it was like, it gave us a measure of consistency Mm -hmm. that I think we wouldn't necessarily have had. Otherwise we were able to find some really great babysitters locally, which is always a struggle. And I think a lot, at least for me, I never did that pre-cancer. So I was able to find some good, reliable sitters that, you know, have been a lifesaver for us. And, um, and it's, it was, it was very strange meeting new people and kind of outing myself as you know living with cancer but it also once i got more comfortable doing that i was able to be pretty upfront about it and now all of our local community friends are all friends that we've had post you know developed post diagnosis so they don't know pre-cancer Emily necessarily. And so it's much easier for them to 
you know, be there for us and talk to us about what's going on. And, um, that that's all they know about our family. Like, mm-hmm. so their that, that friendship came about because they were willing initially to, you know, take that on. And so that's been wonderful. So I, I, you know, a lot of friendships change so much after a diagnosis, like, you know, a cancer diagnosis and, you know, I had, I lost a lot of friends because they just didn't know how to stay in touch. And, you know, having this whole friend group that came together, you know, not knowing anything about us other than us with our family with cancer has been really great because there's no, you know, there's no weirdness about it. It's very interesting. You're right, because they they know you only with this diagnosis. I want to talk a little bit about infertility and infertility with cancer. So you mentioned that you were trying for a second child or thinking about it when all of this happened. How did you deal with the fact that you weren't able to have a second baby? You know, I'm, I'm, I will deal with it for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we had been, we had been trying for a couple of months. We had, and we actually, the, that we had to schedule the initial ultrasound after my doctor found the breast lump. We had to schedule it at a very specific time because we didn't know if I was pregnant or not. And mm-hmm. so we went in and they're like, are you pregnant? I'm like, well, I don't, think so but like (laughs) let's let's make sure and I wasn't um which would have been a whole different can of worms that I try not to even think about um it has been a very weird journey being you know dealing with infertility but it's not infertility in the way that many people experience it which is this kind of like no man's land of waiting of you know should you know could we get pregnant should we get pregnant what are our options like we don't have any options our we're adoption agencies don't adopt out to metastatic individuals our only option would be to we weren't able to you know, do any fertility preservation because our insurance didn't cover it. We didn't have time um, before I started treatment. And we have one kid and we realized like our lives are going to be in upheaval from now on. Like there's really going to be no, you know, it, it would not work well with our family dynamic to try to bring another child, even if we were to go get an egg donor and a surrogate or, you know, foster or, or do something that are completely valid and wonderful options for other people would not have been a good option for us because they're, you know, having a three-year-old who's just on the cusp of understanding what's going on. Like he knows mom is sick. He knows when, you know, mom is tired a lot and that mom can't always be present in, you know, a physical way or in a mental way. Like it is a real strain on our family. And I, I can't deny that it isn't. It, it is, I put more needs on our family and I am able to give back less in the way that I was. And that's very difficult. So in some ways I'm like, well, we have a kid. We don't have to worry about, you know, we don't have to be in that place of we're never going to have a child. And while that 
adds a whole level of difficulty in logistical stuff and in, you know, mental and emotional and physical stress and, you know, strain. It's also wonderful. Like our family of three feels very complete in a lot of ways because we've been able to say like, this is, this is it like it and that's okay and as he's gotten older it has gotten easier to look back and say you know I'm a little bit wistful for those early days but my early days were not exactly a walk in the park my son didn't sleep I was in a ton of pain I was super depressed like those aren't really I don't have a lot of really good memories of those that early time so for me the thought of doing it over again I'm like well you know my son is potty trained and he is very independent (laughs) and he sleeps through the night and uh you know he's he's difficult he's an intense high energy high you know high intensity kid but that in some ways kind of lends itself to feeling a little bit of okayness about okay well you know we can put our energy towards him and not be stressed you know stretched even thinner but there's all of our friends are having babies like and I love that because I love that I get to snuggle them for two hours and then give them back (laughs) Um, like I don't have to do anything except rock them let them fall asleep on me and have someone else play with my kid (laughs) especially not at three in the morning right exactly exactly and and so I love that I get to kind of be this like you know mom friend auntie to all of these other little babies that Felix is going to grow up with then he's going to grow up with as uh you know we have a group of friends and we're all very very close and uh, many of them have had or are you know you know are pregnant with their second kid and he's going to grow up getting to know all of those babies in a very, very close, very intimate way. Um, And, but then that's not going to be disrupting his home life necessarily. So I, I'm slowly working on making my peace with it, but there's a part of me that is still really sad. And especially when someone asks me, you know, Oh, when, when are you going to have, when are you going to give, your son a sibling I'm like never like literally I don't even have a uterus like <laughs> that's that's just not an option and it it's so interesting like I get that more from like well-meaning hospital texts that are trying to make small talk or you know don't look at my chart and then ask well could you be pregnant and I'm like no, like 100%, I am not pregnant. Those parts do not, you know, exist in my body anymore. And they're like, oh, well, when was your last period? It was like, it was two years ago. <laughs> like, I, like, I, no. And, um, or people that won't take that, no, we're not having any other kids. It's not an option for us. Like, they don't take that at face value and they want to try to fix it and say, well, you can always adopt. Or, you know, there are all, if you wanted to expand your family, there are always ways. I'm like, that's, that's true, but this isn't a debate. Like, this is the, you know, the, the way that our family is going forward is not really, uh, you know, something that I feel like needs to be a dialogue with anyone. Like, 
respect our wishes. That's so true. There was an article that was posted and went viral maybe a year or two ago about, you know, basically to asking people that very same question. And, you know, everyone is going through something and mm-hmm. has their reasons and they're not, there's no need to justify them. Right, right. And they're, by recognizing and respecting different families have different choices and and different reasons and that's okay like it would have been perfectly okay for us to have been happy just having one kid even if i didn't have cancer mm-hmm. but uh, you know that people for some reason tend to get hung up on the idea that well you need to have give them a sibling like there are plenty of very very well adjusted very productive only children out there my oncologist always reminds me of that she's like you know i was an only child and i turned out okay <laughs> and i'm like yeah that's that's true like you know and 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 my son is actually kind of has the personality of he he does well i think as an only child like it's it doesn't feel like it is at all detrimental to him mm-hmm. so i don't worry too much about it um but I, yeah like everyone is going through something if it's not cancer or you know infertility or like maybe they're having trouble with their family or who knows and who, whose business is it it is like Life is not fair and it's not easy and trying to pretend that it is or should be is just going to make it harder. Absolutely. You mentioned that you were struggling with postpartum depression. How did you come out of that, especially in the light of what then happened? Um, I had a really fabulous psychiatrist who was, I call her the puppet master because she is so good at really addressing my medication needs in a way that is very finessed and still does that. And, and is, and she, between her and my oncologist who, um, you know, has been very proactive in managing, you know, whatever pain I might've had. Um, they have been very, very good about finding appropriate drug regimens to manage my mental health in a way that really makes me feel like me. Um, I had to really push for it. It was, I, it was not something that anyone was, kind of presenting to me, like I got a referral at my cancer center. I got a referral to go see the psychiatrist who not only was an hour and a half away, but I couldn't get an appointment for five months. I'm like, I am in crisis now. Like, mm-hmm. like you need to do something better than that. And that it, it wasn't available. They just couldn't. Um, and so I found someone who's very close to my house and who is very easily accessible, wonderful. She has a very palliative uh, kind of uh, process to her practice and is very, very much, um, you know, I feel like I, I, it's 
she's very trustworthy. It's um, so I'm I'm very honest with her about my my needs and my goals, and she's you know very honest with me about you know what drugs I could and couldn't be on and what they're going to do and how I should be taking them and um, what I should be taking them with. And so that, you know, that makes me feel, it's very reassuring knowing that I have a doctor that is going to take me at face value and that I can be honest with. And so I don't, I mean, I take a lot of um, psychiatric medication for depression and anxiety to help me sleep. Um, I'm not actually on any pain meds anymore because I was able to, uh, you know, I, I, my treatment so far, knock on wood, have been working to a degree that I don't really have pain that needs to be managed. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I don't, the drugs I'm on are, are pretty intensive, you know, psychological drugs. And everyone's like, you know, people say to me, like, aren't you worried about addiction? And I'm like, I'm not because I have a doctor that is giving me really exceptionally good oversight and who is going to have a conversation with me long before I get to a point where I feel like I'm, you know, misusing anything. What are your thoughts on women or men who are diagnosed with cancer and the importance of seeing a mental health professional. So I think a lot of people kind of feel, and we can kind of get into your thoughts on this, but a lot of people feel like they should be strong, right? Because that's the message that's seen in the media. You're going to be a fighter. And they're very resistant sometimes to going for therapy or counseling or medications. What's your thought on that? Well, I think that... A, I think that a mental health referral should be as standard as like a pre-treatment PET scan. Like I, <laughs> I, I think that that needs to be not waiting until someone is like sitting in the, uh, you know, consult room sobbing about like wondering when they're going to die and like, you know, feeling hopeless and I mean, dealing with a cancer diagnosis is just, it's a total overhaul of everything that you thought was true and real and, you know, productive. And so there are professionals that can work with you through that. And that isn't not being strong. Like, I don't think that they are mutually exclusive. And I think that a lot of the language of quote unquote strength is very, um, very limiting and very reductive because it gives this singular idea of what strength is or could be rather than allowing that to be defined by the individual. And for me, one of my biggest acts of strength and courage was to say, I cannot do this by myself. I need help with my mental health and I will need it for the rest of my life. And that's going to make me a better version of me. That's going to make me a better mom. It's going to make me a better wife. It's going to make me a better me. It's going to make me a better professional. It's going to make me a better patient. I, everything that I need to improve in my life, I can work on through finding you know, mental health help. 
And so for me, that was like such a courageous realization. And so it is, you know, being strong and courageous is not taking everything on your one person's shoulders. It is recognizing the resources that exist and why they exist and utilizing them so that you can share the appropriately share the load. It's, it's, um, it's so hard to do, but once you realize how you can do it, it is so empowering and you, you know, at least for me, I don't, I don't want to, you know, speak for anyone else's experience, but for me, it has, you know, slowly, but, you know, steadily allowed me to be much more of an advocate, be much more outspoken and have the energy to do that and be a parent and be a wife and be, uh, you know, do whatever it is that I feel like I need to get done and not, and, and not let that weigh on me, not feel like I have to take it all on myself. I think that's really the best way of putting it. I'd like to switch gears a little bit and talk about your cancer advocacy, your podcast, and kind of what you've done in that sphere. Yeah, yeah. I mean, where where to even start? Like, <laughs> I I feel like it's it feels like it's been kind of like a lifetime of work when I look at it, and it's it's been a year and a half. Like, <laughs> and, and that's crazy. Um, well, I I like everyone else who has a cancer blog. I started writing about my diagnosis. Really, I think like a day or two after I got my initial diagnosis, like we hadn't even gotten the biopsy results back yet. And I was writing all this down because I felt like it needed to, it, it needed, I needed to recognize the narrative in it. And I also wanted to be able to have a singular point of access for family and friends because all of our family is, uh, none of our family's local. So, I didn't want to spend hours texting people or emailing or talking on the phone and rehashing this because it was mm -hmm. so traumatic. So I wrote it all out and I, I, I realized in the, the transcribing of this situation, I got this feeling of control over my narrative. Like I can't control what is happening, but I can control how I am speaking about it, what I am saying about it and what, you know, how I'm, I'm articulating my feelings. And by doing that, I can give the people, you know, family and friends that are reading this, I can give, give them a sense of control in, in you know, in knowing what, in, 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 you know, in giving them as much information as possible in a way that suits me. So I started writing my blog and, and I was, kind of going through the whole process pretty like, you know, nitty gritty and people started reading it and commenting like, well, this is, this is very good. <laughs> this is very, this is very helpful. And, um, and it was, it was strange. I would start getting comments 
or in emails from people like who I didn't know and who are like, I found your blog because I Googled iBrands and it's very, it's very helpful. I really appreciate it. Keep it up. And I was like, okay, maybe, maybe I'm onto something here. And I, I've always enjoyed writing. And as an attorney, I did a ton of writing and it's a very comfortable medium for me. So it was like, well, I'll keep doing this and I will you know, use this as a way to take back some of the control that I feel like I lost and use my training as, you know, use my training and, and, you know, professional experience as a way to harness the needs, you know, some of the needs of this community, especially being metastatic and young and a parent. Like you don't see that voice with all three of those pieces coming together very often. And, um, and so, I mean, my background is in elder law, which is, um, which a lot of uh, public benefits, benefits, um, insurance, wills, trust, estates, advanced directives, and adult guardianships and capacity issues. So I, I spent, it's a very kind of public health adjacent, and I spent a lot of time working in connection with social workers and care managers. And I actually worked as a care manager for a couple of years uh, with my, my clients, my wards. And they had so many diverse needs. And I, I felt like I became very adept at looking at these very complex situations that involved, you know, finances and insurance and uh, benefits and housing and medical care and activities of daily living and, you know, all of these different pieces and being able to kind of, you know, pull each one out and address it. And I was like, well, I, I can do that through my writing in a way that I think is unique. And so I started doing that more and more and in, um, you know, in, in different circles with, you know, with different publications, I would draft an article and send it off and people were very responsive to it. Like, well, that's great. Like, <laughs> that's cool. It gives me something, you know, a little bit more productive to do with my time. It takes me off of, uh, you know, Amazon Prime for a few <laughs> hours. I realized as I continued writing, I realized that through that I was engaging in dialogue with people that was really, really important and really, really critical to the, you know, to the, the movement of the breast cancer and metastatic community, you know, again, in this, this confluence of being young, having a kid and being metastatic. And I realized these conversations are not happening in a way that people can access them. And it's not just me being able to sit down and write, you know, you know, write out, uh, you know, a few hundred words. It's the, the dialogue that needs to be pushed, the questions of people of different experiences that need to be asked. And so that's when I wanted, you know, to start the podcast. I didn't know how to start a podcast and I didn't really have time. I'm not particularly tech savvy. So I reached out to my best friend who does a lot of media production. And she said, I, I know a couple of guys who, you know, who do the back end stuff. They have a little network. They 
I pitched them the idea. They loved it. And so we are, you know, we, we finished two seasons and we're starting, I'm, I'm in production for seasons three and four right now. Season three is going to be a very deep dive into nuances of breast cancer mm. and uh, looking at kind of these conversations about why there feels like a division between early stage and metastatic um, what it's like to be in, you know, different personal situations with the diagnosis in terms of race and in terms of gender identity and expression. Uh, I'm also talking to, um, you know, just a number of, you know, to some researchers and really getting a sense of what the holistic picture of breast cancer is in going into, you know, October being breast cancer awareness month, what breast cancer awareness really encapsulates and what to do with the platform that we have, how to really make the most of that instead of just flapping pink ribbons on something and saying awareness, like, you know, what does that mean? What does that entail? And how are we utilizing that in a way that is truly effective for the community? Thank you for doing that because you're right. I mean, it's the ribbon is a symbol and I think there, you know, you can, we can talk for hours about this the pink ribbon. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But I think actually doing it, actually having the conversation, that's, that's the real work. Well, and it, it, it is. And I, I appreciate that. Like, and, and the fact that you're doing this podcast as well, it, it digs into this, under, this nuanced understanding of what this disease looks like. And I was, I mean, I was at a, uh, you know, a party yesterday and, um, you know, for the fourth and, I was one of three women there with breast cancer and we were all under 40. Yeah. And there were only like eight people there. So it was, <laughs> it was kind of crazy. And all of us had had very different experiences, you know, different stages, but it was still, you know, that, that look of kind of shock and horror when I tell people that I'm metastatic, it's, it's very interesting to me. And I'm, I, I'm still trying to kind of unpack that in a way that is productive because I don't think there is a lot of understanding about what met, metastatic disease is if you are not living intimately with it. And, and I want that to change because if we're looking at a disease where I think the statistic is like one in three early stage people will metastasize, then we're looking at that 33.3 whatever percent is going to get hit over the head with a sledgehammer and, you know, shocked out of their minds because they, there's not a huge societal understanding of what it means to have metastatic cancer versus you know, early stage breast cancer. And if I had a dollar for everyone that said, oh, you have breast cancer. Oh yeah. You know, there's like so many treatment options. It's super treatable these days. I'm like, well, you haven't talked to me about anything about my disease. And I don't really, you know, you don't know that. Like that's, yes, there's been a lot of research done and it's good and it's great research. It has done so much to 
advance the understanding of breast cancer, especially, um, you know, in relation to oncotypes and the need for chemotherapy, it's not enough. And it is, it's not going to be enough until we are recognizing metastatic disease as a, a separate piece of funding and research that needs to be addressed again, that goes beyond the idea of awareness to what sorts, you know, to making precision medicine and very advanced research the status quo for treatment and making that treatment, you know, making those advancements so that we can push this disease into, you know, more and more of a, you know, chronic idea rather than having this nebulous lifespan of, well, we don't know if you're going to, you know, respond to treatment and then you might have, you know, five to 10 years or not. And then you might have two to three or who knows, like it's like we're in this, this gray area right now where we don't even always know what to expect. Thank you so much. <laughs> Is there anything that you want to share with the listeners that we haven't touched on? I really just want to stress that I am available as a resource. I, I mean, I, I don't say this lightly, that if anyone listening wants to reach out, wants to continue this conversation, wants to you know, collaborate or, or, you know, learn more or is going through something similar and wants to, um, you know, needs, needs a sounding board to reach out to me. My, my email is beyond the pink ribbon at gmail.com. And my blog is emilyrgarnett.com. And you can reach me through, through that. I am available for, I, I want to keep these conversations going. And I, I, ask and encourage anyone that wants to to do that to you know feel free to reach out to me to engage and i'm i'm also in the process of starting a nonprofit that i'm hoping will be active by the end of 2019 called the metastatic parenthood project which is a uh you know a a, a single resource resource platform for young people with metastatic cancer where a parent or a caregiver has metastatic cancer and young children. So it's not just breast cancer. It's going to be any, you know, any metastatic disease because we're such a high needs, low time and energy population. And, you know, as, as, as an attorney and a case manager, as I've gone through the past you know year and a half, almost two years, I've tried to document everything that all the processes that I've had to do and look at them and say, all right, you know, does this translate broadly or is this very specific? And if it's very specific, how would it translate broadly? And so I'm hoping to turn that into an organization that can do that for other people as well. That is incredible. I mean, there's that's just such an incredible resource that's going to be out there for young parents and their you know and their family members and the people in their life that really I think feel lost because it's not only the person who's diagnosed, it's everyone around them. Yeah. Yeah, and and it's and especially when um you know, especially when you're trying to deal with a little kid and you're like, well, what do I tell them? Do I, 
Um, and, and being metastatic, you're not, you know, explaining to them, oh, okay, well, mommy has this, you know, this boo-boo that's going to make her bald, but then she's going to get better. Like, you can't, you can't say, okay, you know, yeah, this is going to get better. And you have to, the conversations are, are much more nuanced and much more nebulous depending on the child. And it's very, very hard to, um, you know, to have those kind of conversations when, you know, also when you're emotionally drained. So that, that's been a big piece for me. And also as an attorney that, you know, did uh, estate planning and advanced directives, having a place where you can go and say, okay, I need a will, I need a power of attorney, like, help me, you know, help me source that out. And what does that entail? Like, you know, and, and my hope is that I'll be able to provide grants to individuals as well to be able to go to an attorney because I'm not going to be doing them. That's a, a whole separate thing. There are people that, you know, do that all day, every day, like let's, you know, outsource where appropriate and, um, you know, being able to refer them and give them grants to be able to go to an attorney and have an attorney say, this is going to be your specific estate plan. And that could include, you know, guardianship issues for children or, um, you know, looking at assets and, and making sure that things are very easy for the surviving partner, the surviving spouse, so that, you know, everyone can feel more calm about the individual's legacy and that they have more tools and are more empowered to enjoy the time that they have because they're not stressing about what they're going to leave behind. That is beautiful. Thank you so much for talking to me today and sharing this. And I think it's just people are going to benefit so much from hearing your story and all the good that you're doing in the world. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's, you know, sometimes I feel like I'm, I'm just kind of like shouting out into the void. <laughs> and so it's, it's nice to be able to shout out to the void with a microphone. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think we all sometimes feel like we're shouting out into the void, but you know what? It's important and people are listening and they're hearing it and they're getting so much from it. I, it, you know, thank you so much for doing for doing this podcast and for creating another space for more voices, because that's, you know, I feel like we, we can't have enough voices and perspectives available because we're all going through the same things differently. And what works for one person might not work for another, but everyone needs to know that they're not alone. Exactly. And the more that they can hear, the more that they can find, I think is just so beneficial. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Thank you again for listening to my conversation with Emily. If you enjoyed today's episode, and I hope that you did, please take a moment to leave a rating and review over on Apple Podcasts, as that is the best way for me to reach new listeners and grow the show. Please check out the show notes for information about Emily's blog, her podcast, and where to find her on social media. You can find me at Dr. Duplinsky on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for more cancer news and updates as well as podcast information. Thank you all again for listening, and I will see all of you next week. Have a great weekend.